beautiful. You are listening to the Africana Woman Podcast. I am your host, Chulu. Every week, I ask an Africana woman to invite us into her home, and she gives us a snapshot into what happens behind her closed doors. I hope you will join me on this journey of discovery, revelation, and self-awareness. I'm not going to lie. It may become uncomfortable sometimes. However, I encourage you to push past your unease and challenge yourself to think differently. The simple act of expanding yourself to receive the unknown may be transformational for you. This episode is brought to you by the Africana Woman Visionaries. This is the premier network for female entrepreneurs of African descent. You can learn more about how you can be part of this amazing group of women. And all you have to do is visit at Africana Woman on Instagram or Facebook. You know, We all have powerful stories to tell. And I know it's easy to brush your story aside and think no one would want to listen to what you have to share. But believe me, your story is your superpower. I was blown away by the interview you are just about to hear. The Africana woman I spoke to is Lisa Sekaja, who is from Uganda. Listen, when she speaks about her childhood, I guarantee you will feel a certain way. We never really appreciate the sacrifices and ordeals our parents experienced as they raised us. They shielded us from so much and we take so much for granted of what they had to give up so as they could provide and for us to have. As we continue to celebrate International Women's Day and Women's History Month, I would love for you to celebrate the older generations. They are the reason that you have the privilege to be where you are today. I would love for you to just go and sit with them, you know, And just say, thank you. Also ask them, what is your story? Document it, record it. And this is something that you can pass down to your children and their children. It's such a priceless gift. So, Lisa Sekaja is an international human rights lawyer. A feminist wife and a good mother. She has worked for the United Nations for 13 years in different capacities in Geneva, Kenya, and Zimbabwe. She has also worked with Save the Children Norway in Uganda and as an ardent advocate for gender equality and women's rights, especially for women of African descent. It came quite naturally that she founded, co-founded the Phenomenal Women Global, PWG. And this is a non-profit organization that's based in Geneva and Uganda. And their mission is to connect, advance and empower women by providing leadership training and mentorship 
So this is available for women and girls. Please enjoy my conversation with Lisa. Lisa, it is so exciting to have you on the Africana Woman podcast. I'm glad that you were able to come through and I'm excited for this conversation, but welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here today. Yeah. So, um, Lisa, oh, you have had such a, an interesting career so far. And I am really curious, what, how did your, your, your journey begin? What is your story to getting to where you are right now? Well, I was born in Uganda in the 70s. Um, and when I was two years old, my parents fled from Uganda because of the politics at the time. Idi Amin, the dictator, was in power. And we had a lot of instability, political instability, death threats, and uh, things like that, not only to my family, but to many people at the time. So my family mm-hmm. fled to Kenya and they lived there for, we lived there for like one year. And then um, my mom got a job in the court in, in Zambia as a, as a magistrate. Um, mm. And he moved to Zambia and my dad followed later on. So I spent about 10 years in Zambia in, in, in primary school. Um, so I spent a lot of time there. And after those 10 years, my parents wanted to move back to our home country because the leadership had changed and a new president was in power um, in the 80s. Um, and so we moved back, um, but my parents put my brother and I in a boarding school in Kenya, Greensteads mm. International mm. School. And um, so I spent the whole of my secondary education there and did my last two years of um, high school before university in Uganda. So um, after that, I kind of moved back. I went to university in India and the UK. Um, So I I studied law and I qualified as a human rights lawyer. Mm. You have said so much in there that we need to just, let's just take it back a little bit. (laughs) So I'm curious, um, what was it like, especially, I don't know if you've actually spoken to your parents about what it was like leaving the country. You know, you were very young at the time, but what was that experience like? They had a really bad experience because um, they literally had to run out of the country um, where, you know, my dad was facing death threats from the current government. So was he a politician? No, he wasn't. He was a banker. Um, and he was Mm -hmm. also a part-time actor at the theater. So, um, at the time, um, many people would be targeted for little things because I think the government was quite paranoid. So, for example, the theater group he was in did a play about a dictator when they were in Nigeria and um, some of the actors were killed when they came back and my dad was also part of this play. Mm -hmm. And then he was also a manager of a bank at the time and I think one person uh, who took a loan from the bank used the money for purposes that were not in agreement with the current political system. So, you know, when such things would happen, they would look back at the paper and see 
who did this? How did he get the money? Who approved the loan? And so my dad was um, kind of targeted um, because uh, indirectly, um, somehow some of the things were perceived as um, threats against the government. And yet, mm. you know, he, he was not a politician at all. Um, yeah. So he had to, he escaped and left the country by road. And mm. um, my mom followed a few months later, selling all our properties and um, coming with an, uh, enough money, which lasted us one year in, um, in Kenya until, you know, they, they got jobs. Um, my father was employed in Kenya, but I don't think my mom was. And her being a lawyer like me, I think, um, used some of her connections to get job, a job in Zambia. Um, mm. where we went so my dad actually um, traveled all the way even though we flew to Zambia as a family my dad couldn't go because he didn't have the right paperwork having oh, left okay. the country abruptly and um, so he drove all the way from Kenya to Zambia sometimes having no money um, on the road and using his car as a taxi and and putting fuel um, like mm. just to put fuel until um, he found us in Zambia and those were the days with no mobile phones, you oh, know, wow. so <laughs> it was hard to, to find out where he was unless he, you know, unless we got a call and mm. he took about two weeks, um, to arrive, um, safely wow. with some stops. Yeah. So that was yeah. their journey. My dad journaled this in a notebook. So I know it so well because I read his notes. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, is this actually documented and written somewhere? Because this is like, like it should be a movie. <laughs> well, he wrote it in a notebook that I found when I was about a teenager and bored at home. So mm. I ended up reading. It was just like a rough notebook that you used to take meeting notes. But mm -hmm. he put a lot of detail, especially of his journey from Kenya to Zambia by road. Oh, and the people yeah. he met and the problems he encountered and so yeah, mm. it's inspiring um yeah we always thought we should write a book so when you read that what was your reaction I, I i'm assuming that you knew how you ended up in zambia uh but i guess when did you become more uh cognizant of you know all the political issues and how that's affected your family what were you, what was your um yeah, I guess your reaction as a child to, you know, being uprooted and living in a new country? Well, the uprootment, because we were quite young, was okay. I mean, it was normal. The only thing is we were quite poor in the beginning when we reached Zambia because my mom's salary was very small. And mm. yet when we left Uganda, my parents were quite well off. They had properties and, you know, so the change of moving from a big house into a little squashed, maybe one bedroom house. Um, mm. And there was a time where they hardly had any food to feed us because the money that my mom was making was very little. But eventually um, my dad being a banker, um, applied for a job in Zambia National Commercial Bank. And mm. one day, um, after all those struggles, he got a job um, and it supplemented my mom's income. And with that job, which was, um, I think he was a, a manager in some section, um, mm. came a house and a car. So nice. <laughs> moved from this little squashed studio 
to yeah. a big house with a lovely um, uh, garden and um, a car that was provided for by the, um, you know, by the, the bank. So that then our lives became much better and we had more opportunity. But it, I did, I do remember a little bit our struggles, um, especially when I, at the age of five, when my parents were on their last dollar and, and their last cent. And, and I asked my dad if he could buy me sugarcane. And mm. he only had a few coins. Uh, in his pocket, that the lady is selling sugarcane on the road, who's also poor, was like, okay, just take it for free. And I remember looking at the the look in my father's eyes that he felt so mm. helpless, somebody who was used to buying whatever he wanted and had beautiful clothes and cars when we were in Uganda, um, mm. reduced to not having enough money to buy the sugarcane. Um, yeah. So that was kind yeah. of a, one of my most um, early childhood memories is, is just yeah. that part. Yeah, because of the way so, that looked. Yeah. How do, I, how do you identify yourself? Yes, you're from Uganda, but then, you know, you spent your very younger years in Zambia and then you spent a lot of time in Kenya. Do you feel connected to Uganda? I Yes and no. <laughs> yes, because my family is there now and the core of my family is there. So home is like where the family is. But in terms of the um, cultural connection, I think I have a combination of all those countries where I live. So I can't really say that my mentality and the way I think is absolutely Ugandan because I've been affected by Kenyan and Zambian culture and now Western culture as well. So I can't say I'm a typical Ugandan, but I am proud to be Ugandan in the sense that, you know, um, I come from, my origins and my roots are from there. Mm -hmm. Was it a difficult decision for your family to move back to Uganda? Yes, I think so. But they felt that they would thrive more in their homeland because of the, um, okay, the change of leadership and there were opportunities. So normally after a war and political instability comes opportunities when there's a new leader and a lot mm. of the friends had started doing well who they left behind or a lot of them were coming back the ones who fled so it was a hard um, decision because they had made new friends in Zambia but they wanted to be home where you know they could buy land and and you mm. know, reclaim some properties that were stolen and, and stuff like that so mm. yeah did they manage to reclaim land I think some of it, yes. Some of it, yes. Because I think even in the time of Idi Amin, um, uh, when he, um, he, he asked the Asians to leave and he took their properties and gave them away, when mm. the new president, Museveni um, at the time, came into power, um, I mean, after ver various presidents being there also in between, um, mm. he called people back and he tried yeah. to help people regain their properties. So, um, yeah. I think that was a positive thing. Okay. So did your mother inspire you to be a lawyer? Or was that just something that you felt so passionately about? 
I actually wanted to be a journalist. Oh, you <laughs> did? Mom, yeah, inspired me, but I wanted to like read the news, you know, or be the reporter. <laughs> like, hi, I'm reporting from Iraq and a bomb has just gone off or something like that. <laughs> I, I really wanted to be in that adventurous space. But at the time in Uganda, journalists were not earning so much money as lawyers were. And so when I told my mom I wanted to be a journalist, she helped me get an internship with a leading newspaper in Uganda, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I went with this, I was attached to a reporter and we would go to report on cases in court. And this mm -hmm. reporter that I was attached to or had an old bag and he seemed to be hustling. But when I reached the court, there were these beautiful women in black gowns and uh -huh. And they had so much authority, women and men. And I was like, wow, I think this seems much more <laughs> interesting. It was like a switch. <laughs> so I said, okay, I think it was probably a strategy of my mom, but I don't know. I, then I just said, you know what? And then at that same time, when I was thinking of going to uni, the mm -hmm. genocide happened in Rwanda as well. Mm -hmm. So it got me thinking, and, and you know, when this genocide happened in Rwanda, the, the bodies of the Tutsi were floating into Uganda. So they, they, the people who were, you know, because Uganda and Rwanda are neighbors. So when the Tutsis were, were killed, they would throw some of their bodies in the river. So it would float into Uganda. And that time we were living by the lake. So there was this horrible stench and I, I didn't understand it at the time, but my, when I asked my parents, like, what's going on, um, yeah. you know, watch the news, then I said, you know what, I think I will study law, but I'm not going to do commercial law. I'm going to mm. do something like human rights, humanitarian, mm -hmm. where I can make a difference. Um, and, mm. and that was my mindset, because initially I was like, okay, I'm going to do like, make lots of money, go into commercial mm. law, companies and all this. But that kind of changed the trajectory of my life because I was like, wow, I need to be a useful lawyer uh, to humanity. I need to, I need to, um, you know, with the problems that are happening at the time and then my parents going into exile, you know, I need to be there sort of knowing what are the causes of these issues and how can I help mm. people legally um, to prevent them from from you know from all the sufferance and human rights violations that happen mm. yeah yeah that's a powerful story um you have worked in several countries you've been in geneva kenya zimbabwe um the states as well and i guess what what for you, what type of work for you has made the most impact, you think? Oof, that's a hard one. Um, I think working with Save the Children, mm -hmm. uh, to me, was where I saw and felt the impact because I was working on uh, projects of violence and sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, child soldiers. Uganda had uh, a number of child soldiers that were um, demobilized at that time. So mm -hmm. we were doing projects where they would be rehabilitated and reintegrated into the communities. So for me, I felt there I was, you know, making an impact uh, and ensuring these children uh, go back to having a normal life. 
I also wrote my dissertation when I did my master's on, on this, uh, not knowing it would lead me to getting a job with Save the Children. I just did it because I found it very interesting and, and in a very interesting thing about the use of child soldiers. Um, when we were little and in Zambia and we came to Uganda for the first time on holiday before we actually moved there, um, at this time, uh, roadblocks were being manned by soldiers and some of them were kids with guns. So that image again stuck in my head because I was a child and I was thinking to my parents, we're at a roadblock, but why is this child holding a gun? You know? mm. So it stuck in my head for years that somehow, you know, when something is in your head, you, I mean, when I did my master's, I did actually do research on it and wrote a dissertation. Mm. And years later, I got a job with Save the Children because of that, they were looking for someone to work on with these children. And they saw mm. I had written this um, dissertation and they got interested in, in my study. Um, and so, yeah, that is where I felt um, I was making a difference, to be honest, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. What type of work did you do with them? You said that, um, you know, it was rehabilitation, but what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Uh, the rehabilitation programs, well, we'd say the children we were more of a, we would give grants to local organizations that would support these programs but we also had a center in Gulu in the northern part of Uganda which was uh, run with the help of the local communities so mm. rehab programs were psychosocial support so they would be counseled um, they would depending on the age of the child they would have play therapy and things that to help them recover from the atrocities they committed as children and then at the same time, we would have programs to help them reintegrate into the communities. So before they go to their families, uh, they have to um, help, be helped to be as normal as possible. Because remember, these children have been killing. They have been asked to do things that they didn't want. Some of them have been raped and, you know, uh, made wives of the commanders. So we had to they had to go through this sort of therapeutic part and then they were returned to their families and the families also had to be counseled because yeah, a lot of yeah. times those children, sometimes they wake up with nightmares or they be, they're violent, you know, like for instance, there was a child I worked with um, who was playing with his to with toys in the center. And I said, yo, let me play with you. And he was building something. So I said, what are you building? I'm building a gun. It's what he was telling me. And this is an eight-year-old child. Okay. He was so serious. And I was like, really? But at that time, the military, the, the rebels would make children at six or eight, between six and nine, because they have that capacity to assemble. If you see a normal child, mm. they would make them put the parts together of the guns. Mm. So this child, even in his therapy time he was building a gun you know mm. but you know with real toys now but yeah yeah but that that's the kind of um deep seated trauma that is there and and this generation of children um yeah is is um basically suffering yeah that um, has there been like continued, um, I guess, study um, of the children that have been through, you know, the therapy and how they are doing right now? 
Um, they must be because I left the organization and moved on. I, I went uh, to work with another organization, but um, a lot of people have written books. I have studied mm-hmm. the kids. Some of them are big now. I mean, now some of them are adults and, and they're you know mm-hmm. living their own lives. But um, I, I must say it's a really traumatic experience for many people, for many mm-hmm. children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so then you are now based in Geneva and you have a passion uh, for working with women. Could you tell us about why you have that passion for working with women? Well, basically, I have this passion for working with women because I find myself um, being a minority here in Europe, Mm -hmm. a black woman from Africa and sometimes I you know I when I'm at work I can I can literally be the only one in a meeting or maybe two or three others and so I realized that it's hard for people of color to move up in leadership hierarchies uh, no matter what job they have if when Mm -hmm. they're living in the diaspora in Europe in a country where you know that's not their place of origin there is racism in, in many places, um, work and outside work. And, you know, issues like that um, limit people from growing uh, in their careers. And so um, as part of my, um, I did a leadership conference at work, and I don't want to mention my office <laughs> name, but I did a leadership conference at work, otherwise I have to get permission uh, in this ex-organization. And um when I did this uh, leadership conference, I, I, I went through a coaching and um, I, I was challenged because the main reason I was there was I was trying to see how I can get a promotion. Yes, I'm learning all these leadership skills. And so my coach was like, you want to get a promotion to do what? Like, what's your bigger vision in life? Mm-hmm. And no one had ever asked me that in my life. I was always on the run. Finish school, mm-hmm. go do your master's, do your master's, get a job, get a job, have a baby, get married, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So I never once in my life sat down and looked at the bigger picture. And here I, might, here I was in my, in my late 30s, let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was um, being asked, what is the bigger picture in your life? So... I said to myself, um, well, I want people like me who look like me, who have the same color as me to be just as successful, be in leadership positions and be able to um, grow and 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 be influential, you know, and I know that um, the system of education here. Um, is different and, and sometimes black people are not encouraged to get into those positions because they don't see anyone who looks like them. So yeah. if I'm living in Europe, um, I mean, and I say um, I want to become a doctor and I, if I don't see any doctor who is black, I'm not going to be so encouraged. So I thought, listen, there's me here to encourage people and there are many other black women who we can find each other and um, decide to to encourage the younger generation and build mm. this um, skill in them and build the, the, the you know, the, 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 the longing to be better and to be someone, even if there are not that many people who look like you. So 
In that respect, I, I formed an organization called Philomena mm -hmm. Women Global, which um, was has as its main objective um, women's empowerment, um, where we have leadership conferences and invite women of all professions to discuss their journey so that we can encourage the younger generation. Mm -hmm. And how has that been received? It's been received well because we had our first leadership conference in um, Geneva in 2018. Mm -hmm. And that, that was, um, it was really, 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 um, we had about 200 people, uh, mainly women of African descent, but also um, uh, women from everywhere who came and, and wanted to hear, wanted to, to learn from other black women who were successful. So we have a special guest that always comes, like for instance, in our last conference, we had Judge Julia Sebutinde, who is the first black woman, African woman to be a judge at the International Court of Justice. And she tells her story and, you know, there is power in, in women to woman empowerment, you know, in sharing that yeah. personal story. So she shared her story and, um, uh, encouraged people. So, um, so we've had several conferences anyway, and not just in mm -hmm. Geneva, in Boston, in Zimbabwe, in Uganda, my home uh, country, and in South Africa. So, it con mm -hmm. the organization continues to grow and um, and help women. Mm. So, when you did that first conference, was there something that surprised you? Um. Yeah, the interest. I didn't expect many people to come. <laughs> I was like maybe 10, 15, but the the room was full. You know, people mm. couldn't even get seats. And that's when I realized this is a very significant problem where we are. People are hungry to 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 have success. People are hungry for role models who look like them. And and that was surprising for me. It was a pleasant surprise. Mm, mm. And were these uh, women that you were just from Switzerland or they came from other countries? Um, predominantly, 80% um, were from Switzerland, um, working in the private sector, United Nations, banks, mm. um, or just women who were housewives at home. Um, mm. But we had the other 20% that came, um, some people who came to personally support me. Uh, some came from Africa, some came from the US and other parts of Europe. Um, mm. And those were people who believed in the cause and in the vision and they, they came to support mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Mm. Girl, after the year we just had, I know as an entrepreneur and a leader, things got real lonely really fast. Uncertainty has become the order of the day and yet we must continue to not only survive but thrive. So as a leader, who do you turn to to fill your cup, to give you inspiration, to teach you and to mentor you? We have created a community just for this very reason, to support each other, to hold each other accountable and to be each other's cheerleaders. This group is called the Africana Woman Visionaries because we're looking past the storm and are focused on the vision we have for our companies and the African continent. Join the Africana Woman Visionaries free Facebook group to learn more. Now back to the conversation. So what do you think are 
aside from, I guess, aside from being our gender and our race, what other things do you think uh, could limit us from being in those leadership roles or even wanting to achieve it? I think also the cultural aspect and um, mm-hmm. depending, because you know, sometimes as uh, African women, we are told not to be so outspoken, not to speak over the voice of a man or an authority, you know, and, and so those are limiting. And yet here in the West, it's different. You should strive for that space. You should mm-hmm. uh, bring yourself forward and speak with authority and uh, that sort of thing. So I think that cultural aspect is a limiting factor. Um, and then maybe things like... Um, the women are, 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 I mean, women earn less, even here in Switzerland, um, it's been uh, proven that women earn 15% less than men. Uh-huh. Uh, so there, is those, there are those gender biases. And at the same time, um, a lot of times in like in financial companies, women don't negotiate as well as men. They're not taught to negotiate. They will be like, okay, that's an okay salary. Whereas men negotiate and they are really aggressive about it. They go to, they make deals and bars, you know, for a job. Whereas we're going back home to look after their kids. And so we don't have that edge because a lot of decisions are made in those social circles where women are not usually present after work because we have our own we have our family life that we we prioritize so those Mm. are some of the from the top of my head I can think of right now Mm, mm. so in your own personal experience um how did you uh how did you maneuver you know, going after the career that you want whilst also, um, you know, having or what would I say, maintaining sort of like traditions at home with your, you know, with your husband and your family. How do you find that balance between your culture and your career? It's hard, I must say. I don't have a a great success story to share, but Mm -hmm. what I can say is... um, when you have a partner who appreciates you for who you are and lets you be and achieve your goals, Mm -hmm. that can be a very pleasant thing. And my advice to women listening is find somebody who accepts you for who you are and what you want to achieve and is not threatened by your success, but helps you to build on your success. And even like if I want to go and study a course, you'll say, yes, I support you all the way. Go. um, I'll look after the children that those are the kind of people um, you'll meet. uh, You Mm -hmm. should meet. And I think that's the the point that I am right now. Um, I was in a in in a marriage before that didn't work. But Mm. fortunately, I met somebody uh, now who. appreciates me who the way I am a strong black woman confident in myself Mm -hmm. but it's taken long to reach that level of confidence because of all the cultural barriers and and setbacks Um, Mm -hmm. but uh, he's able to say listen I'm very proud of you you did this um, and let me support you whereas in my in my previous marriage it was very difficult because he wouldn't Mm -hmm. he would just think that I'm neglecting 
my role as a mother, yet I was calling for help. I would say, I have to do this. Can you do this? Can we do it together? Mm. So the mindset is so important to have. It's important to have those discussions and, and be really honest and say, listen, I'm a career woman, but I'm also a good mom. You know, mm-hmm. and these are my limitations, but let's let's do this together. And and you can actually sit down and say, um, I, I I know I always make it a point, for example, on Sundays and Saturdays to um, cook a meal mm-hmm. for my partner and, and for my kids. Be- and, and they know that, that this is the time when mom has time to cook a fresh meal. Otherwise, it's frozen stuff. I've warmed it up. I don't have the time. And and that sort of thing. So just just um, making sure and, and clear that your family's expectations of, of who you are, are are managed. And they shouldn't mm-hmm. think just because I'm an African woman, I have to do A, B, C, D. The African women back home have the nanny and the maids. So they will just say, listen, cook this and this and this, and they look good. And, and you know, they're in the saloon. But when we're living mm-hmm. in don't have that so we have to work as a team and there's no saying that you are submissive or sub, uh, subordinate to me we have to we have to get over that and and, and just work mm. and focus on the kids mm. Mm. I guess <laughs> this word submissive do you think it's it's it, it equates to subordinate though um let me take it from the biblical sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Joyce Meyer once said, the greatest mm-hmm. submission in the world mm-hmm. was Jesus when he gave his life for us. Mm-hmm. He submitted his life and he showed that God was above all. So in, in the relationship sense, I think mm-hmm. we should, as it says in the scriptures, we should submit to each other. You know, no one is superior. We Mm -hmm. should submit to each other. I can be submissive. My spouse or partner can be submissive to me. So I think, Mm -hmm. and in that sense, you know, we know each other's place and we know what roles we have to fulfill for things to run. I don't mind taking on purely domestic roles. If on the other hand, you're going to cut the grass, you're going to fix the car, you're going to do all those things that if you want to take it the stereotype way, that's fine. Mm-hmm. It has to be equal, but not giving yeah. you 100% responsibility for everything. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's that complementarity that is important. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's very important to make that clear when you are in a relationship. Now that we have uh, a voice as women, I mean, in our grandparents' time, it was a different time. I remember my grandmother mm. telling me, why did you buy a car yet you're not yet married? <laughs> and that was the time, because in her time, you had to be uh, extremely subordinate to the man and look like you need support and be supported. Mm. He mm. asked me that, and I said, well, um, I need to get to work with this car. And she's like, but you should have waited until you got married. Now you might drive past a potential suitor. Right. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm driving past him. So I said, we will drive, we will drive next to each other. Exactly. <laughs> he might be on the bus and you're driving away. So, you know, we've moved from that time. I mean, that was a mm. grand time, but we've moved. 
women are working, women are independent, women mm. make good bosses, you know, good leaders. I mean, look at the pandemic uh, now. Mm. A lot of countries with women leaders have managed the COVID pandemic quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one thing I must say about you, you do not look like you've got a 19-year-old son. You look fabulous, may I just say. Thank you. (laughs) I was like, what? No. (laughs) But I I was curious. Um, I guess, especially having grown up in, in Africa where, you know, we are a majority, and I don't think we necessarily, as Africans rather, understand the nuances of having to raise a child in um, a place that does experience racism. So when you were moving, when you know, when you're deciding that, okay, we want to raise our child, our boys, and on top of that, boys, male children, in, um, you know, these foreign countries, what was your what was your thought process? Were you worried? Were you, yeah? I was worried because I know as for black male child, it's a little bit complicated. I mean, look at what happened to George Floyd, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, look at the the number of pris- um, male prisoners in incarcerated in the U.S. Uh, predominantly mm-hmm. black men. Um, mm-hmm. compared to the, the population. Um, so I was worried um, about them losing their identity, especially the 19-year-old. Well, now he's 20. Um, however, I made sure that he went home every summer. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, every holiday that was long, I, I made that personal investment, and his father as well, together mm-hmm. ensured that he, he went home and connected with the family back home. So he has a Mm. very um, rich sense of pride of where he comes from. Mm. Uh, And he also spent three years in Kenya um, in a boarding school. So when he was about 13, he went to Kenya before coming back here for his final um, years of high school. And so he is very clued in with our culture. He's very clued in with and and comfortable with being a black man. But he did experience a a couple of incidents of uh, racism, subtle forms, comments, you know, kids not wanting him to play with their game, you know, just they are some things that he went through, but I think um, going back home reinforced his value as, as a, a black man. And, and also knowing that he's from a family of that loves him and a family where people have achieved quite a lot of success um, elevates the way he also thinks about himself. So he's not going back to a hut with all due respect mm. to the hut. Oh, I know, but it drives me crazy. With all due respect to the poverty situation, but he's going back home where yeah. they are bankers, lawyers, doctors, yeah. businessmen, and all the role, positive role models in the world, in addition mm. to the huts close by, with all due respect. <laughs> So when did you start having conversations with him about race? Very early on, um, with the first incident of racism that he went through, when uh, a child didn't want him to play with his car, I Mm. said to him... How old was he? He was nine or ten. 
And he came home um, crying and I said, what happened? He said, oh, everyone was playing with this new game. And the guy said to me, you can't play with it because you're black. Um, so I spoke to the teacher and, you know, whatever. Anyway, not much was done. Um, but I told him that don't worry about, don't even let anyone bring you down because of the color of your skin. You come from a generation of, of, of uh, intelligent people, uh, great people who have done a lot. Your grandparents participated in writing the constitution of our country. Mm -hmm. I'm here making my difference. Your uncles are very good businessmen, your aunties, mm -hmm. you know, and I said, never forget where you come from. Never forget. Yeah. And I told him you're here representing not only uh, Uganda, you're representing Africa and you're representing our race. So you behave well, even in light of these, but this bad act with dignity and mm. respect and people will respect you. Um, mm. But always speak out. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to speak to the teacher now. And I did speak to the teacher and um, the teacher was a quite a good teacher. She was American. And she said, mm. even though she actually didn't take so much action about with this boy, um, mm that was really, you know, noticeable. She created a project on Africa and told students in the class to research an African country. Um, mm. Because another thing was all these students are misinformed and think Africa is a place with flies and, and poverty. So they were finding things like, oh, diamonds in Congo. Oh, South Africa, you know, like they were sticking mm. pictures up. And this teacher made me come and um, make a small presentation. She said, and we have an African mom coming. <laughs> so I dressed up in my suit, this African yeah. mom, and my Wakanda head wrap. Yes. And I sat in and I was like, yes. Um, you know, and told them about our country and all the minerals and the animals. And mm -hmm. not just the wealth, but we also have proper roads and all this kind of stuff. And so that was my way of contributing to uh, a racist incident, but yeah. having a very good teacher. So other people, all the people are like, wow, we want to go to Africa. So you, you know, we had all these kids, mm -hmm. you know, emailing, Interested. His parents yeah. emailing me and saying, oh, my son was very impressed by Africa. Can you tell us more about your country? <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of went, I always go overboard when there's a problem, I, I make mm. it you know <laughs> yeah yeah okay i know um when your older son was uh selecting universities as a family you um decided that it would be better for him not to go to uh, an american school even though he had a scholarship but um to opt for one which was in the uk um do you do you think that okay no okay just tell us about your your thought process behind that particular decision yeah, <laughs> i don't want to give a, a, a leading question my you know son what I mean? was is so impressionable he was very he's he was very impressed by the american um, education system he was in a summer camp there football camp mm. he's very sporty um, when he was in geneva he was playing for the geneva basketball team and so, you know, he, he got himself a, a camp in the U.S. So um, it was kind of expensive, but his father and I um, sponsored him and said, you know what, let him go. Um, 
but when he was there, um, he got so impressed and he started applying for universities there. And he got a, a, a scholarship that was almost 50% of the, um, the fees or 70%, mm. 60%, which I thought was a good uh, thing. But because every single time in the news, they were arresting black men, killing mm. black men, you know, guys wearing hoods and all this. And he was at the stage where he could potentially wear a hood and run through a neighborhood. Um, and I said to myself, I'm so worried about you. I know you have this scholarship, but I don't want to, to be worried about you daily. You know, I mean, you can go there for your master's, but for your four years of your degree or three years, I need you to be close to home. I need you to be somewhere where we have relatives and family and, and we can control it because I don't want you to die. And I know that U.S. universities are very good. I myself went to Harvard as a visiting scholar and I state of the art universities. They're so for me, they're the best universities in the world in terms of infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. you know, they really have a good marketing strategy. They have a name. But that little thing, I wish Americans deal with it because none of my family members, everyone would pray and pray that he 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 doesn't insist. Mm. And at the end of the day, um, unfortunately his father died. So oh. financially I couldn't afford it, um, even the difference alone. So, mm. um, so we opted uh, with the father's family, um, his late father's family to, um, mm. to just um, take him to the UK and and that was affordable for both families together. Um, mm. He was sad in the beginning, but I think now he's settled and he's got friends and, and he's mm. happy now. Um, but I always told him you can go there for your masters because then he's more settled and he's older and he's not gonna be like partying with a hood somewhere yeah. and yeah. arrested and shot up. So yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. It was very difficult decisions, very difficult conversations. Um, yeah, anyway, all right, um, <laughs> as we are wrapping up our conversation, because we are actually coming to an hour, this has been fascinating. I have uh, extremely enjoyed learning about your history and how rich um, of a history you have, you know, with your family story of just moving um, from Uganda to Kenya and then Zambia and then back to Uganda. Um, and I guess from those from the experiences that you've had and you know all the the different countries that you've lived in, what is um, the one thing that that has stuck with you from um, having lived in all these different even African countries or even abroad? Um, the one thing that has stuck with me is um maybe the friendships that I've made mm. um I have a very close good friend in Zambia who was my best friend I have one in Kenya one in Uganda but just this multi um pan-African friends that I have in all those yeah. countries um for me um that that has been something that is so important and and even though we don't see each other all the time with Facebook and social media, 
we catch up with each other because th those are important elements of my my history and those mm -hmm. are people who have contributed to to my character being shaped the way it is you know the friends that you've made and the, the connections that we've made so um i always encourage my kids to keep in touch with their friends especially the good ones it's not it's not necessary to have a thousand friends but it's no. very important to have at least one or two or three very good ones that you know when you have a problem or you you're happy and you want to celebrate those people are there with you physically or in spirit um, mm. that that's that friendship aspect is important and and for me i don't distinguish whether someone is rich poor uh, or whatever i have friends from mm. all walks um the hairdresser or the nails lady you know a judge mm. in uh, the icj or the icc um mm. a woman uh, who is selling peanuts and whatever because i know i know their stories our family mm. has been there too from wealth to poverty and back to mm. normal so my my dad always used to tell me um he always used to say to me that you you never know where you you never know where you'll end up you know you never know where you'll be so make sure that you treat everyone with with love and respect yeah. no matter who yeah. they are because that person will one day be in a position where they can help you you might be stuck somewhere and they rise up to a position and if you were nice to them they would always remember that gesture and and return the favor you know mm. yeah mm. very wise words from dad right there <laughs> and it's a lovely place to wrap up so at the africana women um we our community has a saying which is know your roots grow your purpose and i have some quick fire questions for you they're just four of them and just say whatever comes to mind are you ready yes okay number 1 what what are you rooted to Oh, I'm rooted to my um my feminism. <laughs> mm, okay, that's I'm a good a feminist. one. I'm rooted to it and um it, it's a they're quick answers, right? So I don't have to explain all. Oh, you can explain. I'm rooted to feminism uh, and I'll explain to you why I wanted to empower women and I would just like to say that um phenomenal women global the organization that i founded is establishing mm -hmm. women's hub here in um geneva and so mm -hmm. we would like to continue to support women in a more structured way where we can have this um co-working space that is all female because we can discuss mm -hmm. issues that affect us as women but we can also grow in leadership so this is something that keeps me grounded because it's it's my purpose and my vision that i see um in my future so mm. support us on that one <laughs> yeah all right and raising by the way <laughs> i'm doing a campaign here <laughs> i know number 2 what are your favorite ways to nourish your mind body and soul my mind is a good book poetry i write um ah nice I write poems, I write uh, stories. I'm not like a publisher or anything, but I write when I feel like. My body um exercise. And what else did you say? Soul. My spirit. God. 
I, I fast and I meditate and I pray at least, you know, every two months I, I, I fast, but I pray. Um, I pray uh, as often as I can because that nourishes my soul and it reminds me where I came from and who is responsible for me. Mm-hmm. And do you have a weakness that became your superpower? My weakness, <laughs> I think maybe my weakness was, um, oh no, it's not a superpower. I was thinking sweets. That's bad. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> adventure, I think my sense of adventure um, mm-hmm. it has made me um, take risks and, and you know, start mm-hmm. projects that people always say are going to fail because I'm so adventurous. I, I like to go into things that people, normal people don't normally think of doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the final question, what do you know for sure? What I know for sure is that God exists. And what I know for sure is that you and me are going to be very successful because we are on this podcast <laughs> reaching out to many people. So he has used you as a vessel today. Mm-hmm to reach out to other women and to give them encouragement through me, maybe through these stories. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, it has been so amazing just talking to you and getting to know you um, even better. Please tell the audience, how do they find out more about Phenomenal Women Global? How do they get in contact with you? Where do they find you? What are you working on right now? Phenomenal Women Global, we have a website. It's phenomenalwomenglobal.com. And there you can see our activities. Please become a member. Go to the membership tab. and um, Or you can look at the contacts and send us an email if you have any questions. We have a Facebook page, Phenomenal Women Global Geneva. We're on Twitter. We're on um, Instagram. Um, but most importantly, if you go to our website, phenomenalwomenglobal.com, you will see all our social media handles. And please join us, become a member. Like I said, we're fundraising for our women's hub in Geneva to help black women, immigrant women. And we want to make that connection with the with women in Africa as well, to be able to have those exchanges, to have them over for our conferences. So mm. help contribute to that. We have... Um, we're running a crowdfunding campaign um, and uh, you can find all this information on our Facebook page, Phenomenal Women Global Geneva, mm-hmm. where the campaign is there. You can click and donate anything. And once you donate, you will also have a gift from us. So the, the moment you give, depending on what amount you, get, you give, um, they, there are some perks like bags or, you know, just things that you can membership and things like that so just have a look at our facebook page and and support us awesome fantastic so you've heard it phenomenal women global guys please support them all right and we are now at the end of um, this particular episode. Thank you so, so much for coming through. And I'm wishing you all the best in your um, continued support of women in their leadership roles. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To be honest, every time I listen to this interview, it gives me goosebumps. 
There's so many times and so many things that happen to us when we're younger and we don't even realize they're molding us into the people we will become. When Lisa spoke of seeing a child soldier holding a gun at a roadblock or smelling the rotting bodies that had floated into Uganda from Rwanda, all of these events made powerful imprints on her and informed the work she now does as an international human rights lawyer. Your purpose literally leaves you breadcrumbs to follow. I also think many times we may get upset with God for allowing certain things to happen to us. We ask questions like, why me? Or if you are a loving God, why would you let this happen? I know in the moment you may not be able to see the purpose. You may not be able to see past the pain. However, I would just like for you to acknowledge the compassion you now have for people who have been through similar experiences. You are now able to be a lifeline to someone else who is in the thick of their mess or even better, warn others not to go down the same path you went. Guys, please, please, please. Tell Lisa, give her her roses today. Tell her what you learned from this episode, from her words, from her stories. Find her on social media at Phenomenal Women Global. And just let her know you heard her on the Africana Woman podcast. Thank you so much for making us part of your day by listening in. I truly appreciate you. Please help me get the word out about Africana Woman Podcast. All you have to do is take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your social media stories. Don't forget to tag me at Chulu by Design. I love seeing your feedback. Now, my playground is Instagram. <laughs> so if you want to chat with me personally, just go ahead and drop me a line. I will respond. So until next week, I want you to remember, know your roots, grow your purpose. This has been a production of Olendo Creative Media. You can find out more about their services on www.olendocreative.com.